Hey listeners, welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. We have an awesome episode for you today about the book The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. We have here with us today Jeetu Patel, who is the GM for the Security and Collaboration Business Unit at Cisco. Jeetu, welcome to 10x Growth podcast. Thank you for having me, Preeti. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. Jeetu joined Cisco about 10 months ago and for, and he came there from Box where he was the chief product officer and chief strategy officer. So Jeetu our personal path plays a really pivotal role on our career journeys. Can you share with us your path and how it led you to Cisco? It, it was kind of a um, windy path to Cisco and I never thought that you know Cisco was, was going to be but I, I started in Chicago and I ran my own business over there a small company for about 17 years and so my journey was exactly the opposite of most people do most people started big companies then go to a startup I started at a startup and then decided that I wanted to learn scale and so I went to EMC and then within EMC I incubated a startup we purchased a company which was like eight people and we scaled that business to um 100 million dollars in like two and a half years so that was a great ride to go through and i was ceo of that business and then we sold that business to private equity and then i went to box uh, where i i've known Aaron for a while and box was in an interesting journey where they they were about 200 million dollars at the time in revenues and they were going from a single product company to a multi product company it's pretty hard in the startup world to get a product to product market fit it's infinitely harder to get a multi product company to product market fit and get it to scale because it's just like the second and third and fourth products you can't just be a one hit wonder that was what we wanted to do at box i was there for 5 years um i started in building out the platform business and some of the add-on products and then uh, took over all of um, all product at box and uh Aaron and I actually to this date are very close friends we get together every couple of weeks we talk about business and strategy and how the world is evolving and and then towards the end of my time over there I was considering different things and then Chuck Robbins called me and said hey we and I I wasn't thinking that oh, Cisco is where I'm going to go I'm not an infrastructure guy Chuck called me and said hey we are looking for someone who can lead our collaboration and security businesses I'm like okay I know those two businesses well because at Box we had built our security business over there um under me and then you know box was all about collaboration and so i'm like i know how to do those two businesses this was a very different scale and size than what i um that what we had done in box initially i said no and then he said well talk to a couple more people and the more people i talked to the more excited i got about the opportunity and the people frankly and uh it's been 10 months probably among the most intense 10 months i've had in my professional career from a velocity perspective because we've moved really fast but i'd say uh, not a day goes by where i'm not grateful it's a great company and there's so much untapped potential right now great team and so um very non traditional path and how i got to cisco if you would have asked me when i started my career are you going to be at cisco towards the you know in your late 40s i would have probably not been able to predict that you know and so this was kind of a nice surprise absolutely um i spent some time at cisco too i was there for about 12 years oh my goodness right you can maybe teach me a thing or two about cisco that's great which which part of cisco were you in 
I was in those collaboration, security, the telepresence, uh, and e emerging technologies. I did my rounds uh, for about oh, 12 no years. Those are all my businesses. That's great. Okay, that's fantastic. So talking about the book, which the listeners are going to be eager to hear about, what drew you to the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and why? I read a lot of business books from time to time. And The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz is a pretty thoughtful guy. And, you know, I had interacted with him. He probably doesn't even remember. But when I ran my first business, Labs, Netscape had come in to kind of give us kind of an overview of their company. And so I'd interact with the member. He's a very, very impressive guy. And then over, over the years, I've interacted some with Mark Andreessen and with, with um, and I've seen what Ben has done. And it just seems like they've, they've got a very clear thesis on what they need to do to go out and instill innovation and so I've always been a fan of theirs. And when his book was coming out, it was just like normal to say, okay, let's, let's go read that book. But I didn't realize it was going to be this good. So I haven't read it in a while, by the way, in full disclosure. This was something I read like several years ago when it came out. I don't know when the book came out even, but it was, uh, it was right when it came out. I had read it then. The, uh, the point was there were some very, very good insights of the struggles that a leader goes through in a company. Probably my favorite part of the book was, you know, how do leaders manage their psychology as they're going through this kind of roller coaster ride? Because it's not like a smooth ride to the top and right. It's, there's always like every single day there's like, okay, this is working well, but these five things are not working well. And I think he articulates that in a way that's very kind of relatable. And so um, I love the book. I, in fact, now that you were talking about it, I was thinking, oh, maybe I should read this book again someday. Uh, and it's always nice to read a book second and third time later on after a few years because you've learned, you've reflected, and you can go back to it. I agree to that. In fact, I had read it five years ago, and when you selected that book, I ended up rereading. And I, I remembered the part about when his business went from 35 cents per share uh, it was going to get delisted from NASDAQ and all the that's way right, to right. a $1.6 billion exit with uh, HP. Uh, so that was really nice to see how, uh, as a leader, Ben had turned it around. So talking about some of the lessons, the author, Ben, writes about the struggles of building a startup that you mentioned, both the euphoria and the terror. So what are some top two to three challenges that the author shared that you have faced as a leader and what are some learning lessons you can share with our listeners here? Well, I think like if you think in any business, firstly, business is hard, you know, and he talks about this mode of peacetime mode and wartime mode in the business. If there's a very certain kind of intensity and characteristic that you need in wartime, which is very different from peacetime. And oftentimes, companies don't realize when they've gotten to wartime mode. You know, they still operate as though they're, they're in peacetime. If things have been going well for a while and the disruption is starting to happen, you need to flip to a wartime mode. And if you don't, then um, the market will pass you by. Because as Jeff Bezos says, every company eventually dies. It's just a matter of prolonging the death. You know, and I think I truly believe that, that you have to be thoughtful, long-term oriented but very paranoid you know i think he does a very good job of articulating those dimensions in the book and in my um professional career i've always been in highly competitive markets with highly capable competitors and if you take the foot off the gas pedal like someone is right there to take share away from you and um 
you know, I think this whole notion of kind of peacetime versus wartime really resonates because I I feel like I'm always uh, I've spent most of my time in wartime, not in peacetime in most companies, and I think that's just the characteristic of tech. But the other thing that he brings about in this book, which is really important, one of the most important aspects of a company, if not the most important, in fact, I think it's one of the most important aspects is everything originates from the product. Mm -hmm. You eventually, you're selling a product to the market, which translates to an experience, which translates to value, which then translates to revenue. The product that you build, the people that are building the product and the rigor that you take in putting together an engine so that you can constantly build amazing product and tech is pretty important. And he talks about this concept of product managers and good product managers and bad product managers and what defines good product managers versus bad product managers. And that was probably one of the most memorable parts of this book where I'm a product manager and in, a, in my heart of hearts, I just love product and design. Like that's what I do. Like right now, today, if you were to tell me, Jitu, where would you like to spend most of your time? I would love to be in design reviews with people just talking about what, what products are we building and how is it going to add value for the user and how do you solve problems for the user. They do a very good job in the book, especially someone early in their career or mid midpoint in their career even, in saying, how do you define very clearly what a good product manager is versus a bad product manager? The second big thing, this notion of a communication framework. How do you get the entire organization to have a framework on how you communicate with each other and how does everyone have the right um, you know, kind of information to operate intelligently was a very powerful um, aspect of the book as well. And that I've taken to heart in the way that we actually build a communication framework in the jobs that I do. It is what's the operational rhythm and the heartbeat of the organization and how do you communicate to everyone at all levels and how does everyone get clear on the strategy and the execution plans and the operational metrics and the rhythm. Um, and so that that's another... So if I were to say... Um, Managing your psychology, communication framework, and good product manager, bad product manager. And then the other thing that he talks about is uh, how do you interview and recruit for a good sales leader? That was a fantastic part of the book as well. You covered a lot of ground there, Jitu. Um, you know, talked about the wartime versus peacetime, peace good versus bad PM, and the communication framework. I want to dig into one of those. Uh, you know, you talked about most of your career has been a lot of wartime. Was that because you were in startup mode or startup divisions? In most of the businesses I've been in, they're hyper-competitive markets in general. And in tech, when you have hyper-competitive markets, you move pretty fast. And if you don't, then you're left behind. And so the speed and intensity, in my mind, it's not even actually, the more I think about it, it's not even competing with one vendor or the other. The speed of the business determines everything. And, you know, like in, in tech, you just have to have very high velocity and very high speed, which in my mind translates a lot to, you know, kind of wartime mode because you just have to keep going, going, going. Uh, and you can't slow down. I, I completely relate to that being in tech myself. So, Jitu, what are your top takeaways from the book and how is it applicable to your leadership journey? We'd love to hear your framework for success in companies. I think there's a six-part stack rank of what a company needs. And this is, some of it was derived from Mark Andreessen on his thinking around product market fit and all that. And some of this is my own pieces um, that were added to it. But the six-part framework is the following. You need six things for a company to be great. It starts with timing and you don't control timing. And by the way, 
some of this is plagiarized. So just know that I, I to this point in time, I don't even remember what part was my idea versus what part were their ideas. So I'm giving them full attribution, but there's like a there's modification to that that we've done. So timing is the most important, and you don't control timing. Uh, and timing trumps all, trumps all else. You can have everything else, you don't have timing, you don't win. Market is the second most important thing. And the reason I say market is you have to be in a great market where you can actually go into that market piece by piece and be able to go out and win that market. So um, timing trumps market, but market trumps everything else. You, you have to be able to get, get the market. So timing, market, and then number three is team. There's a lot of debate sometimes saying which one comes first, team or market. And I believe that you have a great market, mediocre team, the market pulls you up. You have crappy market, great team, the market drags you down. So I think timing trumps market, market trumps team. The team is the most important other than timing and market. And the reason for that is once you have creative people, you can actually go out and do a lot of things that are amazing. So timing, market, team, number four is product. You gotta have a great product. If you don't have a great product, then it doesn't work. But I don't think the product comes team because if you have a great team, product is a derived outcome. To some degree, arguably you can say, if you have a great team, market is a derived outcome as well. But typically once you have a bad market that you've picked, even if the great team has made a mistake on a bad market, the market pulls you down. So timing, market, team, product. Number five is brand. One of my um, mentors had told me one time, Mark Lewis, he was one of my first bosses. He had said, you know, don't ever go into a company who's lost their brand mojo because it's very hard to resurrect it back. It's okay if you go to a company where the product isn't right because you can fix the product, but you can't fix a damaged brand. Very few companies have come teetered towards the edge and then reverted back. Those examples are like, you know, Apple at one point in time, but Apple always had a following and then they, they turned around, you know, and they, well, what a comeback they had. Microsoft for a while was losing its brand and then they've had to come back. And then is uh, distribution. Because if you just build it, they won't come. You've got to have great distribution. Timing trumps market, market trumps team, teams trumps product, product trumps brand, brand trumps distribution. You need to have all six to win. That's the lessons that I've learned. All right. Now is my favorite question. You're getting quite famous at Cisco for saying make things 10x better. This is very aligned to the 10x growth theme of this podcast. Can you tell us why you believe it is so important to think 10x? Can you share some examples of how it can positively impact business growth? Yeah, it's a pretty important construct actually in, in technology products um, to think about because most people don't switch products because you're 20% better than your competitor. Most people are convinced of switching when you're an order of magnitude better, that they can't afford to ignore you because the value is so compelling. And so I always tell people when you're building a new product and you've got competition or an existing way of doing things, which you always do, don't think about being 10% better because no one's gonna pay attention to you. Think about being an order of magnitude better because that's the only time that there's enough of an incentive. And the reason for that is because most people are busy doing their own job every day. They aren't thinking about your product, they're thinking about their lives. Unless you can make their life meaningfully better, the inertia of the day-to-day -day is far too hard to overcome to convince someone to change into doing something different. And so, you know, if you look at examples, the best disruptions happen that are step function improvements over what you're doing, whether it be business model, 
or technology or experience, but they have to be 10x better than what you were doing in the past. So Netflix was 10x better than Blockbuster because the business model was better and you just didn't have late fees. And that was a 10x better construct than otherwise. You know, if you think about streaming media, which Netflix disrupted themselves in compared to DVDs, I have instant ability to watch any movie but rather than waiting for three days to get it in the mail that was 10x better than the way that you were doing it so people went out and did that uber the way that you called a cab was 10x better because you had you could just tap on the phone and you'd be able to do it and then across a bunch of different areas and markets you see these disruptions happening on a constant basis where you have to create asymmetry what you can't do is say, if someone is here, I'm going to go out and do everything that they've done. And then more people will move over to me because no one's going to move over to you because you did everything someone else did. Because they, the world already had that. So you have to do something different. Um, and so that asymmetry is pretty important. Now, there are times when someone just did a blatant job of copying what you did, but you had something fundamentally missing and someone else was able to catch up because they copied you and they fixed that one thing. But that one thing that they fixed still made it 10x better. And so those kind of things are actually pretty important, where I think that 10x better is a pretty important dimension, every aspect that you look at. And frankly, I feel like if product managers and product people don't intrinsically understand what is orders of magnitude better, you will not have the user base move to you. Yeah, the whole inertia for people to change, it's human behavior. And so you have to disrupt, you have to think 10x better than the other uh, alternative. Thank you for that. I think Netflix is a great example of disrupting themselves. We have been through a tough year, Jitu. However, what excites you about the future? We've been through a tough year, and I think that the difficulty is not completely all behind us. I think if I'm sure, Preeti, you have people that you know in India, and I think what India is going through right now, what Latin America is going through right now is heartbreaking. You know, yes, we've been through a tough year, but I think what they're going through right now is probably the toughest parts of the year that we've seen, um, or toughest part of the COVID crisis that we've seen. And so the first thing I'd say is our heart goes out to the people that are still going through that very, very difficult time. And, um, Cisco is trying to do everything we can to make sure that we can support because the world needs a better and healthier, you know, India and a better and healthier Latin America in order to be successful. Like we need those countries to be healthy and self-sufficient and doing well. And, and uh, we all have to make sure that we're helping them out so that they can get through this. Uh, and the resilience that, that com- those countries are showing are pretty phenomenal right now. Now, given all of that, there's no kind of way to sugarcoat anything in the past 15 months because it's been horrendous. It's been hard to go through. The silver lining that's there is that what we learned was that the, that the resilience of human beings is pretty remarkable. Where if you would have asked anyone 15, 17 months ago, right before the COVID crisis, December of 2019, hey, over the next few months, year and a half, next year and a half, no one's going to be coming into the office. Everyone's going to work at home. Do you believe the economy is going to go up or down? Everyone would have said, without any exception, what are you talking about? Like, that would not work. But somehow, humans persevered, and we were able to get through. And not only were we able to get through, we were able to get through by having the largest amount of innovation, by having the largest amount of kind of, you know, um, surprises on how we can continue to persevere through this crisis. We came up with... Then these companies came up with vaccines 
and now you're starting to vaccinate the world. So it's pretty remarkable what humans can do. I think the thing that excites me now, though, is what we've learned is, and selfishly in my businesses, as I see them, what we've learned is the um, there's about 3 billion digital workers on the planet. And a billion of them are knowledge workers. Two billion of them are frontline and field workers. For the first time, credibly, after having run the world's largest experiment, we can safely say that we can dare to create an equal amount of opportunity to participate in a global economy for all those three billion workers, regardless of their geography or language preference or personality type, whether they're an introvert or an extrovert or their proficiency in you know, technology. You can normalize through all of that and give everyone an equal opportunity to participate in a global economy. That is actually what gets us really excited at Cisco. And that's what gets me very hopeful that the future will be bright. Look, I immigrated to America 30 years ago when I was 19. And had I not immigrated to America at the time, knowing what I had and the opportunities that were available to me, I would have probably not had the same level of luxury and privilege to have done the kind of things I've been able to be fortunate enough to do in my life. What I'd like for the next generation is that immigration to a different country is not a prerequisite for success, that you should be able to do it from anywhere you are. And that, to me, is a uh, tremendous um, privilege to work on that problem, to level the playing field for the world to say, okay, we can make sure that regardless of where you are, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of whether you're a shy person or a social person, you should be able to have equal opportunity and you should have an equal voice and a seat at the table, no matter where the table is. And all the things we're building in WebEx are to try to build up that inclusive future for people in the future so that no matter where you are, you should be able to participate in the creating um, value for the planet at scale, which I don't think most company, most people would say that they would be able to do a few years ago. And now at least we know that there's hope that that can happen. I don't think we're there yet, but I think there's hope that that can happen. And the geography is not going to be the biggest limiter. I love your thoughts on resilience, equal opportunity. And uh, I'd also like to add that uh, we also tr saw true human values being displayed. I know Cisco is one of the companies uh, among several others that is contributing to help people who are suffering. Uh, so getting the masses to, uh, to contribute to the cause is certainly bringing our whole human race together uh, to solve yeah, this yeah. huge problem. This whole notion of like global citizenship and eventually all of us want the same things. People want to be loved. They want to do something meaningful in their life. They want to make sure that they have higher purpose. Um, and um, if you think about it, it isn't fair that something as random as the ability to make money should completely change the quality of your life so dramatically as humans experience today. And I think if you can level that playing field to at least give everyone the opportunity to be able to add value so that they can make money, so that they can actually have a good life. If you do this right, the world is a better place. And what a privilege to actually go out and alter that. You know, how people spend their eight to 10 hours a day can be meaningfully altered based on the body of work that we do. There's nothing that's a bigger contributor to global GDP than that because you create opportunity for everyone. And the nice part is it's not just opportunity for people. Companies now will have an opportunity to recruit from anywhere. And so you're able to go out and have this bi-directional benefit. People can go out and work with anyone and companies can recruit from anywhere. 
that's pretty amazing. And I don't think we could have credibly said that this was something that was even plausible for many, many years in the future, uh, pre-COVID. I think COVID created an experiment that was a forced experiment that told us that this is possible. Yes, yes it accelerated our globalization, for sure. It, it did, it sure did. And by the way, that doesn't mean there's no downsides to it. There's a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of kind of well-being issues right now. There's a lot of mental health issues that happen with people just working from home. People are stressed when they don't have enough space and everyone's kind of crammed together. But I do feel like there's options that you can give people now that are very different. And you have to also think about how do companies ensure that they're not just thinking about productivity, but also well-being, because that is the, sec- the other side of the same coin. So Jitu, it was fantastic to talk to you. Any final words of advice for our audience? Depending on the stage that your audience is in career-wise, if you're someone who is uh, early in their career, I would say that just know that your ability to be bold and question the status quo is super important for the future of society and not just accept things the way they are. If you're someone that is in the midpoint of your career, or a little bit later in your career, make sure that you're starting to give opportunity to people in a very equal way, whether it be, you know, make sure that the diversity dimension is pretty well thought about as you're doing it. So having more women in tech, making sure that people who are more from underprivileged places coming in, don't just go to the Ivy League universities to recruit, recruit from every university because and otherwise it becomes a self-selection process where, oh, I'm only going to go to the top universities to recruit. And then there's a lot of smart people that aren't in those top universities that also deserve to be able to get an equal opportunity to participate. And so that would be the thing I would say. And then lastly, I'd say um, if you are a man in today's world, you've enjoyed a lot of privilege as a result of your gender. Firstly, which isn't fair. But two, real men aren't threatened by strong people of different genders. Make sure that you give everyone an equal chance and build a team that's representative of the market composition of the population rather than just hiring people that are like you. Because at some point in time, you will build better products, you will build better companies, you will build better experiences when you build it with a group of people that represent the people that you're building it for. That is a great note to finish the podcast, Jitu. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And it's um, and congratulations on the success of your podcast. And uh, looking forward to seeing more and more uh, of the good message that you are taking to market on the 10x piece um, being spread across. So thanks again, Preeti, for inviting me. Thank you, Jitu. Listeners, check out the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. And thank you for tuning in.